Very good morning to you all. Very glad to see so many of you here um, and in one piece as well, having walked across very treacherous pavements. Um, I'm going to start our service together of remembrance and of worship, uh, singing uh, this hymn, As With Gladness, Men of Old. And it talks about us evermore being led to Jesus. And that's who we've come to remember this morning, to bring our costliest treasure, as it says. So shall we stand and sing this together? Father, today particularly we thank you that we're able to come here to this place and to do it safely. Father, we've come to thank you for your love. We've come to remember your love and to focus on what you've done for us because we need reminding. So it's good to be here, Lord. I pray that you will bless, bless us in all we do as we think about the things you have done for us. So be with us and we want to feel your presence among us this morning, Lord, as we come closer to you. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, I've got some uh, announcements for you. Um, today, uh, Sunday lunches of Bring and Share, uh, and this, tonight's evening service has been led by Andrew Campion, and the title is "What Do Christians Do?" It's a general theme, and specifically, Andrew's looking at prayer. Uh, next Sunday, again at half past ten, um, is our morning service, which Alex Green is leading. And there's no evening service next week. It's a big Sunday, so the service is at 2:45, and it's. Um, looking at the book of Genesis, the first family in, in the Bible, and Pete Green is leading that service. During the week, uh, not a lot on. Uh, no Bible class, no Bible reading group, uh, no coffee morning, and there's not anything else that I'm aware of. Um, a couple of other things to mention. Pre- the collection next week is... Um, for the appeals fund. This week it's for the preaching fund. Uh, and if the collections, could they start going around now, please? The collections? The bags are down here. Ooh, sorry. So this week it's for the preaching fund. Not much new news, but Rosie's going to come and give us an update, please. Um, it was really lovely on Christmas Day to see both Gladys and Pauline here, who we don't often, um, we haven't seen Gladys for a while since she's come home from hospital, so that was lovely. And I think that was due to the love and care of brothers and sisters that brought her here, so that's very special, her and Pauline. And both of them are struggling and um, need a lot of help and support. Um, I haven't got any particularly new news. I'm sure most of you have seen that um, we'll rejoice with Des and Phoebe in their engagement and pray for their blessing, uh, pray for a blessing on them in the new year. And I think we need to pray for a special blessing on Mary and on um, Pete in, in the new year, uh, that, that God will bring healing and above all will bring Jesus to bring the ultimate healing. I also remember recently talking to John to say the news was good on Simon Dunnigan, that things are much better for him. But uh, I think Paula, um, Paul and Jerry very much need to be in our prayers. Thank you. And we're going to have our pastoral prayer, but if anyone's got anything further that they'd like us to pray about together as a church, and then if they could just let me know. Okay, so if you'd like to join me in prayer. Father, it's so good to be able to come to you. Lord, the whole world is under your control. So, so 
good to be able to come to you and to be able to ask you for things and to come to you. Father, we bring uh, these people to you in people who are part of our family. We ask you to continue to be with Pauline and with with Gladys in their health difficulties that never seem to end. Father, we ask for your blessing on Des and Phoebe as they start to prepare for making a life together. We also remember, Lord, and want you to come close to Mary and Pete in their illnesses and just to be with them and to bring healing and peace. And Father, we also pray for Julia and, 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 and her, her baby. And we pray that everything will go well and that you'll be with them both and the family. So Father, we bring all these people before you. And we ask your blessing upon them. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're going to sing our next hymn now. uh, Which is, Lord, you have my heart. You're right. That was the alternative one. Which we're not doing, we're doing this one. (laughs) Sorry, Mark. We've come together to worship God and to remember Jesus. We've come to praise with grateful love, as it says in this hymn. We've also come to feel a bit of God's love too, haven't we? To to feel thy wondrous love. So let's stand and sing this together. We're going to have our first reading now, and Phoebe's going to read that for us. Um, It's taken from uh, 1 John, chapter 4, starting at verse 1 and then going on a bit into the next chapter. Sorry. 1 John, chapter 4. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognise the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognise the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him, and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he is God, and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, God is made complete among us 
so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because love, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is is Christ is born of God. And everyone who, who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we this is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water alone, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is a testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe in God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Thanks, Evie. I'd just like to spend a little while now thinking about, um, well, it's the subject of that passage. Um, I think it's also the single most important doctrine at the centre of the Gospel. And I'm sort of starting from a point of that that single most important concept that the gospel is built on is under threat and the doctrine is love it's God's love it's God's love for us and it's our love for each other and the two are not separate as, this, as that passage sort of builds up the theme you can't claim to have one and not the other so I'm going to try and explain some of the ways that I think um, that this central foundation of the gospel is being watered down or corrupted. Maybe corrupted is too strong a word, I don't know. I'll let you be the judge of that. So hopefully I'm going to try and um, make a little bit clear um, what love is, or at least what I think the Bible teaches about God's love and about our love for each other. So I don't think there is much doubt that the gospel is built on love. Um, the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, uh, for God so loved the world. I mean, that verse echoed in here in verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us, that he sent his only son into the world. It's the greatest commandment to love God and to love each other. Uh, from that's when uh, Jesus has a conversation with someone in Mark chapter 12. And Jesus gives us a command, doesn't he, that my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. I think part of the problem that I'm going to try and explain to you this morning is that this this big foundation of the gospel, it's just a word. It's just a word with four letters, love. And unlike lots of other religious words, it's a word we use every day. 
with a whole host of different meanings. We just comes off the tongue. Oh, I love chocolate. I love my wife. Oh, I love it when a plan comes together. If you happen to watch the 18. Just we, we use the word so often in so many different meanings. Some of them vastly different, some of them subtly different. And we experience love in our lives in lots and lots of different ways. And some of those ways are a bit confusing. I mean, just one example, um, maybe some of us, um, and ca- you know, we have love in our family. We know we, maybe in our family we experience some friction or a lot of friction with certain members of our family. So being with that family member can be uncomfortable and maybe unpleasant sometimes. And yet we know deep down inside that there is love, that there is a, a deep bond in there. And it's quite confusing. Is that love, isn't it? What kind of love is it? And we also have this idea, don't we, that if someone says, oh, well, if you love your husband or your wife, uh, that's a different kind of love to, say, a love for your child or your parents or your friends or brothers and sisters. There's lots of confusion about this simple word, this very, very important word, love. And I think the problem is, one of the problems is that our experiences of what we label as love um, and what is love, it affects when we read the word love in the page of the Bible, it affects what our immediate reaction is to that word, how we feel that word, what it means in that context. It also doesn't help I guess that in the Bible, in the original, in the New Testament, there are three words uh, that are translated, three main words that are translated as our one word, love. So that's further confusion to add to the existing confusion that's already there. Most of the passages, to aid with the confusion, most of the passages I've used today use just one word for love. And it's the word um, agape. And it means the deepest unconditional love so the passages that say love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul use that word the passages that say um, husbands should love their wives use that word the passages that say love your enemies use that same word so let's take that one I think that is a difficult one for me and I'm sure it is for you that particular phrase there love your enemies that's used the same word that how you should be loving God, love your enemies. When you hear that phrase, love your enemies, when you read it, what do you think it means? What, in your mind, oh, if you imagine you had an enemy and you were told to love them and you said, okay, I'm going to love my enemy, what would that mean? What would you be doing with or to that enemy or what would you not be doing to that enemy to be loving them? What, what's your reaction? Any thoughts in there? What do you see in your mind's eye? Yeah, that's a start, yeah. How about, I think for me, the first thing I think is a lack of hate. Lack of hate for the enemy. Um, And I also imagine that if you love someone, you have to put up with them. They're an enemy, but you have to love them, so you'll have to put up with them. And sort of these kind of ideas in my mind, like, oh, well, if I love them, I'll just have to grin and bear it. I'll have to pretend that it's not a problem and just put on a a smile and pretend that it's okay because I'm supposed to love them. And I have to tolerate them. And I have to not react in a bad way. And maybe I need to have a bit of pity for my enemy. So I'm putting these as suggestions, uh, just as ideas of the kind of things that possibly the kind of thing that would be in your head if you didn't think about it. Maybe when you start to think about it and you're in church, you think, oh, we should really love our enemies, it's unconditional love, and you probably think a bit more carefully about it. But when you just read it and someone says it to you, love your enemies, maybe they're the kind of things you think. I don't know. I'm going to suggest to you that all the things that I read out, certainly, are possibly not even nearly close to what love is possibly in the general direction of where love might end up being the start of a journey but it's so far away from love that it's not love at all it's barely love 
It's merely the distance we can travel in a within our biased mind. It's it's as far as our small imagination can leap, and that's all. I'm going to think a little bit shortly about how Jesus loved his enemies. Before I do that, I just want to think about um, how we might go about getting a better feel for what love means, how we might better interpret the word love when we just read it. Um, now, before I start, I've, for a long time, I've believed that the experiences, our human experiences that we experience in our lives, uh, that are close to us, um, that we need those experiences um, for an intellectual, and they need an intellectual understanding that we have, we have to have experience of it for it to have the deepest possible impact. You can't just have an intellectual understanding, you have to experience it. Now that's a little bit odd, because five seconds ago I was telling you that all our experiences confuse sometimes what we think the word means. So these two things seem to be opposing each other, that we can never understand what love means, because to properly understand you need experiences, and our experiences are confusing and muddy and so varied so how how are we going to do it well as we've read this morning in the john reading it starts off talking about testing the spirits doesn't it that we we shouldn't just accept things and face value we need to test things out when the bible i've just got some suggestions really when the bible asks us to do something asks us to love we just have to be really careful don't we that we don't water it down We don't water it down to our own taste. We must leave in place the highest ideal of what love is and put that definition when we read it. And what is the highest definition of what love is? Well, the Bible is a good place to go and have a look for what real love, the highest definition of love is. Look at Jesus as an example, which I'm going to try and do this morning. Uh, Listen to what God says. And not try, I think when you're trying to interpret what love means, the best thing is to not try and interpret. Not try and think, oh, what could that really mean? Just think, well, it means love. Don't think loving my enemies, that's difficult. I wonder what it could possibly mean. Don't think, just read the word love and put the word love in there and don't think too much about it. I think also, one other thing, I don't know whether this is a good idea or not, I, I think it is. It's something I do in my mind when... I read something and I have an interpretation that jumps into my mind. I test it with other scenarios. So uh, maybe it just comes from my job or something, a kind of way I think. So let's just say it says, love your enemies. Well, I sort of think, okay, I'll imagine what loving your enemies could mean. You know, Maybe it means I have to have pity for them and that kind of thing. And I think, well, okay, well, let's take that word love and let's see... Um, Let's apply it to a different scenario. Let's say I'm counselling a newly married couple. Is the kind of love that's in my mind, would I be advising those people who are just about to get married to have that kind of love? Is lack of hate for each other good enough kind of love? I don't think so. Uh, Is tolerating each other a good enough kind of love? Is pity a good starting point for love. You might be thinking that doing this kind of thing, Mike, you're up there telling us to mix and match all of these different ideas of loving for enemies and loving for wives, and you're going to make us even more confused. <clears throat> and I actually think it's less of an issue to be, confu- to be that confused as opposed to watering down. Watering down love, I think, is a bigger risk. And I'll try and tell you what I mean. Um, for example, one, one thing I might end up confusing you with is you might end up uh, confusing your fellow church members um, with your parents and your children. That's as bad as it, that, you know, that, that could be one confusion that could happen. You might end up feeling to a complete stranger as devoted as we would hope to be to God himself. That's the kind of confusion you could get. The worst, I think, that could possibly happen is you might end up getting the hots for your enemies. And I think if it happened, it would be an amazing fulfilment of God's love.
good news about the seemingly contradictory ideas that I was talking about is that it's possible for our understanding of God's love to grow. That's how it's supposed to happen. As we read uh, in, the, uh, in the reading in verse 19, God first loved us. God starts, when we had no love at all, no understanding of, of what real love is about, God first came and loved us. And any understanding of God's love, no matter how small, changes you inside. It empowers you to love and makes you love without thinking about it. And as you grow in love, your understanding of what love is deepens. And through these experiences, you understand a bit clearer what God's love for you is. And in turn, that enables you to go deeper into love. And the two the things feed into each other and it becomes like a a cycle where you learn more about God's love and you're able to love more. And the, along the way, our experiences of loving our ordinary lives, confusing as some of them may be, uh, we can add these in. And as our understanding grows, we can learn maybe to interpret them a bit better. And our love can grow. And I think that's why in the passage we read this morning, you have to love with actions. It's something that builds up. You, you practice it and you get better at it and then you take a step back. and then you, It's a lifetime's work to understand God's love. So love starts from God and it comes to us and we love as a result. And it's our calling. It's our calling to become part of God's love, for God's love to become complete in us. I'm going to shift the focus a little bit um, and come back and start thinking about Jesus as an example of love. Um, In John chapter 15, verse 12, it says this, which you've already read. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. So, how exactly does Jesus love us? I'd just like you to use your imagination a little bit uh, before I start thinking about some proper examples. Just Okay, the, the kingdom has, has, has arrived and you get to meet Jesus face to face. How do you think it will go? So there he is, Jesus himself, who loves you enough to lay down his life for you welcomes you into the kingdom of heaven with a handshake. It's a bit like a wedding procession when the, the bride and the groom are there and you walk past and Jesus comes and he's you know, happy and well, joyful and welcoming everybody and he shakes you by the hand and you go past in the, in the, in the, in the queue. And as you walk past, you think, that was a little bit strange because I didn't really feel there was any eye contact. You know, he was there all happy and everything and he said, oh, welcome in and he sort of glanced at me in the eye and he didn't seem to fix my eyes and feel a little bit odd and then again later on when you're in the the meal that Jesus was looking forward to at the last supper the meal when he was going to drink again that wine in the kingdom of heaven you're on the table with the meal and there's a spare seat opposite you on the big table on the big trestle table and Jesus is walking past with his tray looking for a spare seat and he sort of hesitates looks at your spare seat and then he walks past he laid down his life for you but maybe you won't enjoy sitting down and having a meal and a nice chat with you you sort of maybe get the feeling in your imagination that although he loves you in the most extreme way possible that maybe Jesus doesn't actually like you after all who could blame him the things that you two both know about you. You know, someone might say that um, they might love their brother or sister, but they don't actually like them enough to want to spend that much time with them. And I wonder if it's an unspoken fear deep inside us about how Jesus and about even how God himself feel about us 
that they love us, but maybe they don't actually like us that much. But I think it's all wrong. I think it doesn't make sense. Even if we can theoretically label that behavior as love, it's the wrong kind of love. It's a shabby, meager love that has not been nurtured and grown. And it's not a love we should ever imagine Jesus would have. Now we're going to have our next um, our next reading, and Sheila's going to come and read it for us. It's Philippians um, chapter two, first eleven verses. Philippians chapter two. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit. If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thank you. So there's this passage telling us about Christ's humility, how, how extreme his humility was and about how we should imitate that humility. And there's this little verse in verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And that's in the middle of a passage where we're talking about imitating Christ's humility. And it's one of those passages that I read it once and it just didn't make sense. Because how, if I'm copying Jesus and I'm supposed to be in copying Jesus, I'm supposed to consider others better than myself. How can Jesus consider others better than himself? Because they're not. No one's better than Jesus. But I believe it's true. I believe that Jesus, in genuine humility considered others better than himself. It's really hard to imagine because of all the people of the earth ever, he, 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 wasn't, he, he was better than everybody else and he should have known that. But I don't think that when Jesus met people face to face that he just treated them as if they were better whilst knowing in his head that they weren't. I don't think that's what was in Jesus' mind. I think that's what it means. I believe all the scumbags and hypocrites that Jesus met in his life and shook by the hand, that he considered them better, that he respected them, that even, even looked up to them in a way, in his mind, emotionally. He didn't feel that they were worse than himself or less worthy than himself. And if you don't believe that, look at the actions of Jesus. That's what they tell you. They tell you that he considered other people more worthy than himself, humbling himself even to death on, death on a cross. 
So I've chosen this Philippians passage really because I think the idea of humility and the way we see other people around us um, is one of the things that we often miss when we read the word love. And I've got this phrase that I've made up that doesn't really make sense in the same way that this passage doesn't make sense. Um, Love doesn't flow downhill. Love doesn't flow downhill. And what I mean by that is although love can flow from someone who is better than someone else, the person who loves never thinks about it. Never. I suppose the basic point I'm trying to make is you don't love someone you don't also respect. I don't know which comes first, respect or love, I don't know. But proper love love that's grown and nurtured has the deepest respect and looks up to the person they love. I need to think of a scumbag like Zacchaeus. I'm sure there's many other do-gooder rabbis maybe tried to reform Zacchaeus and his tax collector friends. So how come when Jesus meets him there is this amazing transformation? I mean, someone like Zacchaeus probably all his life felt the condescension, felt the looking down, the disrespect from everybody. I can't imagine anyone that didn't disrespect Zacchaeus. And the odd thing is, it's the kind of thing that religious people throughout the ages are known for, for looking down on people, for being do-gooder, for being self-righteous. So um, I'd just like us to very quickly read um, Luke chapter 19, the first nine verses. And John's going to come read that for us, please. Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. And Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Thanks, John. So there you go, the, this dramatic turnaround. Zach is changed from someone who was curious, someone who's curious to know about Jesus from afar, into this extreme repentant person. Someone who knew Jesus as his Lord. Here and now, Lord. I think that's amazing. And I think this turnaround was, well, there was certainly eye contact, I have no doubt. And I'm certain that Zacchaeus felt from Jesus there was no looking down, despite him being short. There was no looking down on Zacchaeus from Jesus. Just respect if you can imagine that. And there was no hesitation of Jesus in a crowd of people honouring Zacchaeus in front of a large crowd of people. And I'm sure Zacchaeus stood there and got the very strong feeling that Jesus would love nothing more than to come and sit and share a meal at his house and have a chat. Jesus was called a friend of sinners. 
not because it was some PR stunt that he had to teach us something by trying to target sinner people because he was a friend of sinners plain and simple well think of the some hypocrites like the Pharisees they certainly were with thought before about loving enemies that would never encounter an enemy as extreme and as intense in our lives as Jesus did with the Pharisees I came across a verse a couple of years ago in in Mark chapter 3 verse 4 if you'd like to turn to it so it's another time when these hypocrites again come uh, to Jesus to try and trap him And Jesus asked them, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill, but they remained silent. And it says an interesting thing. He looked round at them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. And it was restored. And I just think it's really interesting that Jesus was deeply distressed at the Pharisees. He wasn't, oh, I can't be doing with these Pharisees really hurt Jesus distressed what kind of word is that distress that's pain and that's what Jesus felt that's what loving your enemies does it gives you pain because they're your enemy and Jesus was passionate about his enemies about the Pharisees strange as it seems in Matthew 23 Jesus says this how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And Jesus was definitely proactive. He didn't just, oh, I can't be doing with these Pharisees, I'm just going to avoid them because it's better that way. Jesus always went to them and always challenged them if it needed to be done. Saying the words that needed to be said. And he was persistent He didn't give up. He continued always going to the temple, always trying to help make them see with lots of different uh, arguments helping them to, to not be his enemy. Even on the cross, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. So we start to see when we look at Jesus what the real word love, the real unconditional love really means in its maturity and potency even when applied to your enemies not saying that the relationship was cosy even pleasant it certainly wasn't but I think it's very clear that that wasn't Jesus' choice that Jesus did everything in his possible in his strength to make it not the case So I've said most of what I want to say. I'm just going to read back to you some of the things I've thought about. Just thinking about how the way in which God loves us and the way in which Jesus also loves us because they share the same love in the same way that we can share God's love. Yes, we are lower than Jesus in every way I can think of. We know it intellectually, intellectually, Jesus knows it. And astounding and unbelievable as it seems, Jesus loves us. But it's not a small, feeble love like the things we sometimes label love. It's a deep, powerful love that means that Jesus never looks down on us. Jesus' love is not based on pity. Pity is not love. Jesus respects us that's amazing isn't it to think that that could possibly be how Jesus feels about us I'm going to read you something now it's not quite true but I'll read it anyway Uh, see if you recognise where it comes from when a man loves a woman can't keep his mind on nothing else he'd trade the world for the good thing he's found I was thinking I might sing it but then you might know if she is bad He can't see it. She can do no wrong. Turn his back on his best friend if he put her down. I think, I I don't know, I was just, I was 
cause to think about that song. And it's not exactly what I wanted it to say. The words of this song are a bit more muddled, a bit more extreme. This man, he really, really can't see that this woman is bad. But I think it's part of love, isn't it? It's what love can do to you. It can make it very easy not to see someone's faults, love. And I think that's how Jesus feels about us. Not that love makes Jesus stupid, that he can't see or know or find out about our faults and our weaknesses and our darkness. Deep in his mind he knows it's there. But when Jesus meets us face to face, that's not what he sees. He sees someone he loves. And I believe that Jesus would love nothing more than to spend some time with you and with me and to chat and to have a meal. And I know that when we meet Jesus, there will be eye contact and warmth and friendship because that's what love is. That's what the person of Jesus in the Bible reeks of. And I think the idea that you can love someone but don't have to like them is not an idea that God ever had. I think maybe it's an idea that we have had sometimes because it's too hard for us to do. Maybe because God's love is not properly completed in us yet. God's love is compassionate and it's generous and joyfully given. God's people are described in a couple of places as the apple of his eye. That's not something that describes looking down in pity at someone. It's infatuation. So what about us? How should we love? How should we align ourselves and bring ourselves closer to God's love? Our love for enemies or people consider against us or don't get on with has to be so much more than just lack of hatred. It has to cause us pain. We have to be passionate about them and proactive and persistent. That's what love does. And love for anyone else, no matter who they are, no matter what kind of scumbag they are, you have to respect them. Because that's what love does. That's what God and Jesus do to us. And if their love is to be completed in us, that's what we must do too. And this ideal love, this unconditional love, this agape, agape love that comes from God is not something we should expect to come easy. We shouldn't water it down and make it to be, make it to mean something that matches uh, what is achievable. Because this love, by definition, is unachievable. It is God's nature. So, let's uh, share bread and wine together as we think about God's love for us and about our love too. I've asked Juan to come and uh, give thanks for the bread, please. And now that we take the bread, we think of your death and sacrifice. My Father, we have to concentrate as well of all the life in between that shows your love for us, that shows us all the way in which we have to live our lives in accordance to your love and the love of the Lord Jesus for each and every one of us in the same way that we have to love each and every one of as to each other. And Father, we <coughs> pray as we pass the bread among us to remind ourselves of this love and all the implications that it has in our lives. And we thank you, Father, that we have been invited to partake of this bread and that we pray that in the days to come, we will strengthen our love and remember what it all means to us 
And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like us to sing our next um, song together. Uh, we're just going to sing uh, two songs now. What, this uh, Jesus Loves the Church and Brightest and Best. It says in this song that um, Jesus knows who we will be. He knows what we will be. But I don't think that's why he loves us. I think Jesus just loves us. Jesus loves the church. He gave himself for his bride. Shall we sing this together? Mighty God, as I was lying on my back in the ice yesterday in the park, two things sprung to my mind. One was, ow, this hurts, and the second one was, so that's why they measure friction on ice. That's zero. And how do we measure love, Lord? We measure love by your dear Son, who is the love of God. And yet, he can never be matched. It's not a one-dimensional measurement. Jesus' love for us is four dimensions at the very least. And whilst at times our heart soars with love for our loved one, for our child newly born into this world, we reach almost to that perfect love, but on another measurement, on another scale, we are so far off. This guiding light, this unfailing brightness, this depth unfathomable, is the love of God. And that love of God gave himself willingly for us. It wasn't a sacrifice that was forced, it was a sacrifice given. And given not for the whole, but for the each one of us. God so loved the world that he gave his son for each and every one of us. And how do we measure love? We measure love by that unfailing, unstinting. And we just try to gaze upon it in awe and reach for it with our hearts and our minds, knowing that each one of us is beloved by God so much that a place is set aside for us in his kingdom. Our Father, we thank you for your dear Son. We thank you for this day that you've given us, that we're going to go on our ways warmed by love, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, on whose name we ask this blessing now. Amen.